It's good to be with you guys on this Lord's Day. We're going to be continuing or picking back up in our, our Job series today called Sovereign Suffering. Uh, in chapter 1, we learned that Satan had stripped away Job's children and, and his fortunes, but the patriarch responded to that, those issues and that struggle and that adversity. He responded to it with unbending faith in a sovereign God. In chapter 2, we learn that Satan reloaded his arsenal and unleashed a second attack. And this time, he struck Job with terrible sores. He robbed him of his health, uh, these sores from the top of his head to the soles of his feet. And yet, the patriarch, Job, responded once again with unbending faith. But something happened while Job was grieving on the ash heap at the city dump. Despite his initial response of unshakable trust, he began to weaken, weaken under the excruciating trial as the crushing reality of his losses began to really penetrate his soul. A heavy cloud of despondency settled over him. The blameless upright man of what I would deem incredible faith, he had become so depressed that he desired death. And this is where we find Job in chapter 3. This is, this is the mode that he's in in chapter 3. Please take your Bibles and turn to Job chapter 3. We are going to take a look at the entire chapter. We have to look at the entire chapter, and this is because of how it's written. Um, it is, with all due respect to Job, it really is just one long poetic complaint where Job really does three things. He curses the day he was born, he wishes he had actually died at birth, and he longs for death. I have entitled this message, The Pit of Despair, The Pit of Despair. By way of context, Job is still on the ash heap, and his three friends, Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar, they were there with him. Remember, they had arrived, and now they were seated with him there. And after seven days and seven nights of silence, chapter 2, verse 13, this, what we're about to study, what we're about to look at, what we're about to read, this is what happens next. I think it's befitting that we pray once more before we actually look at the Word here. Father, we humble ourselves and yield to you now. We pray that you teach us and instruct us through your Word. Help us uh, with the subject of despair, and most importantly, point us to the right antidotes for it. Lord, we are often, even as Christians, subject to uh, despondency, subject to depression, subject to despair. And I know some would say, well, if you, if you have depression, if you have any sort of despair, it's because you don't have enough faith. Well, that might be true, but even the Apostle Paul at one time during his ministry despaired of life itself. And he was a tremendous man of faith, so we can't possibly blame this situation on a lack of faith. There are things that happen in our lives that will impact us in, in deep, profound ways. And depression is a, a very real thing, I know from personal experience. 
So we pray, Lord, that you instruct us from your word today and that if we are at all depressed or despairing or any of these sorts of things, despondent, that you would lift us out of that state. And we thank you for what you'll do now when we pray in Jesus' name, amen. So we'll look at the first section here. Number one, Job curses the day he was born. We see this in verses 1 through 10, and we'll pick up at verses 1 and 2. This is the very next thing that happens after the the silence. It says, after this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And then in verse 2, which is probably one of the shortest verses in the Bible, it says, and Job said, and we stop there. So the author comes right out and tells us that after the seven days and nights of silence, somebody finally spoke up, broke the silence, and he says it was Job himself. Job is the one who initially broke the silence. And notice how he did not begin by uh, greeting and welcoming his three friends who had arrived just a a week earlier and who had traveled a, a massively great distance to come and encourage him. He doesn't begin by greeting them, the author tells us. Instead, he does what? He begins to curse the day of his birth. This would be like someone saying, I wish I had never been born. Have you ever said that? I think I have a few times uh, during difficulties. But this is essentially what he does, but he does it in in such a marvelous way with lots of poetry. And from verse 3 forward, we, we see Job's actual words. These are his words verbatim. This is him speaking here. It's almost as if It wasn't that somebody was sitting there listening to him and recording his words. I don't think that's the way that it played out. It's as if Job himself is speaking here, which is another proof that he may very well be the author of this tremendous book. These are his words. These are his complaints. These are his cries to the Lord. And his words are pure poetry. This is all poetry in verse 3 all the way to the end in verse 26. It's pure poetry. That is the literary style. And if you're like me, uh, you challenge a little bit to comprehend poetry. I don't know if you do, but I certainly do at times. Uh, But this is all poetry. Now let's move to verse 3. Here's what Job says. Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, a man is conceived. Job wanted and desired the day on which he was born to perish. In other words, he wanted it to be permanently removed from God's calendar. He wanted that day to to, to be vanquished as if it had never existed, gone, uh, removed from the annals of history, removed from God's calendar. This is what he's crying out for here. And he also wanted the night he was conceived to also perish and be removed from God's calendar. So he wants his conception removed that evening, and he wants the day of his birth removed. And as we will find in a little bit here, he also wants the evening of his birthday removed. He wants that entire 24-hour period completely removed from the calendar, as if it never had existed. 
And in his mind, he reckons that if he had never been conceived and then born, he would what? Not be experiencing the adversity and pain that he was going through. His remedy here is, is that the adversity and pain be removed because he never existed. That's what he's calling out for here. And I'll tell you, one of the most unhelpful things that we can do during difficult seasons is follow Job's pattern here of creating hypothetical scenarios. Because that's what he's essentially doing. Well, if I had never been born, I wouldn't be going through this. So that's a hypothetical scenario. And hypothetical scenarios are not helpful when we're suffering. Job is saying, if I had not been conceived, if I had not been born, that's a hypothetical scenario. Uh, I, I know for a great many years, I used a hypothetical scenario, and I would say things like, if my parents had only stayed together, if I had only finished high school like normal kids, um, and, and, and we use hypothetical scenarios such as this, if God had only done this or that, or if my, my son had only stuck to this or that. These are all examples. Uh, one that you'll hear frequently in our house is, if we could only go back to the 80s. Yeah. Any of you 80s children out there ever said that? Bruce is like, if I could just go back to the 20s. Right? Yeah. Anne's like, I'm going to kill him after the sermon. But... Who hasn't said that? I mean, I hear Rachel sometimes say, if I could just go back to high school. I'm like, I left high school early. I don't want to go back. You know, I would not want to go back. But these are all hypothetical scenarios that we, that we think and speak during times of emptiness or during times of sorrow and struggle, right? We, we wish for better days which were in the past, Right? And here's the deal, as men and women of God, as Christians, as believers, we are not to ponder the what-ifs. We're not to be what-if people. We are to base our lives on the rock-solid truths of Scripture. We are to base our lives on the promises of God, not the what-ifs, not the, on the what-could-be's. And, quite frankly, we are to humbly accept our circumstances and continue to trust the Lord. That's what we're to do. Hypotheticals do us no good. In fact, I think they do more harm. And, and no matter how many hypotheticals we generate in our minds or even talk about, none of those are going to actually change our situation, right? Right? Something that occurred in the past can't possibly change what's going on now. So let's not be like Job and spend 26 verses on hypotheticals. And plummeting downward into an emotional spiral, Job continues to curse the day he was born. He's not done with that yet here. We move to verses 4 and 5. Listen to what he says next. Again, this is poetry. Let that day be darkness, exclamation point. And he says, may God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. Wow. 
I couldn't construct a sentence like this if I was paid to. And I am paid to, by the way. This is, uh, this is beyond my poetic pay grade, so to speak. This is just beautiful poetry, although it's very depressing. Build a little context for what he's saying here. Before God furnished the earth with light and with plants and with animals and with human beings, the earth was what? Without form, it was void, and it was shrouded in darkness, right? Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. What is darkness? Darkness is basically the absence of light. It's all it is. Where there is no light, there is darkness. There is blackness. And what Job does here is he calls for the day of his birth to be absent of any light, to be completely void like the earth was before God said, let there be light. And essentially what he's doing and wishing for here. And what he wants the day of his birth to be is a day that has never, ever in history been sought by God and never, ever given his light. Or to put it more simply, he wants the day of his birth to be a day that his creator never created. A day, again, removed from the annals of history, removed from God's calendar. And yet, since the day of his birth is a reality, Job says, well, since it does exist, he calls for it to be filled with gloom and deep darkness. And he wants clouds to dwell upon it so that no light is seen. And, and the day, he wants that day itself to become terrified by this deep blackness or darkness. Continuing Downward into this emotional spiral, Job curses the evening of his birthday. He calls it that night. And we can move to verses 6 through 10. And, and that's one thing that's, that's true of this poetry or these poetic writings. You can move through them pretty quickly. Uh, they're not typically laden with big theological doctrinal truths. They're just, it's just poetry. So we could be moving quickly, and that's why I could do 26 verses today. Verses 6 through 10, he says, That night, speaking of what? The night of his birthday, the evening of his birthday. Let thick darkness seize it. Again, another exclamation point. I think he's actually yelling this in front of his friends, and they had to be sitting there going, What? And he says, Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those curse it who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning. Really good poetry here. Verse 10, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Job wanted the evening of his birthday, that night, to be shrouded in darkness, covered in deep darkness, deep blackness with no starlight. No starlight. Again, he wants it removed from human history, from God's calendar. He wants this day of his birth and this evening of his birthday, he wants it to 
to, to be no longer numbered among the days of the month. Right? You've got a Wednesday, you've got a Tuesday. If he was born on a Wednesday, he wants that Wednesday gone as if it had never existed. He calls for the, the, the day and evening, really, of his birthday. He calls for it to be barren and without joy. Uh, barren, when we think of someone who's barren, that is a, a, is a person who is uh, a gal who is incapable of bearing children. Really, in a sense, he's calling for that day to be barren, that evening not to give up any children. He wanted that day to, or that night to be cursed by those who curse the day. This is an interesting phrase, by the way. Those who curse the day were probably professional Prophets who, like Balaam, were paid to curse one's enemies. Number, numbers 22, verses 1 through 7. There were actually prophets who roamed the land in those days who were for hire. And you could pay one of these prophets to go and curse your neighbor because, you know, one of your cattle died because of him. You could pay this guy, he'd go over there. It was very superstitious and bizarre. And, and we see this in numbers, but I think that Job is referring to that. There were men for hire that could, who, who could literally curse people and curse a day and curse these things. I know it sounds very strange. It's not what we're used to, but it existed. And, and he wants these professional cursers, these professional prophets to curse the evening of his birthday, that night, quote-unquote, so powerfully and effectively that it would literally rouse up Leviathan. Leviathan was either a mythological sea monster that could devour large objects, or, I mean, when I think of Leviathan, I think of Godzilla. You're familiar with Godzilla. Godzilla is a type of Leviathan since he came from the sea, and there's different types of uh, Godzilla's, there's Shin Godzilla, which is literally a, a fictitious sea monster, but think Godzilla here. Uh, in a sense, what Job wants is Job wants Godzilla to stomp through the day of his birth and the night of his birth like uh, would happen in Tokyo or something like that from the old movies. He wants these prophets to, to curse that day so profoundly and so effectively that this this mythological creature, or maybe it wasn't a mythological creature because Job seems to speak of it as a real deal. It could have been a large crocodilian-type reptile that existed in Job's day. But in any case, he wants these prophets to curse in such a way that this thing would rise up and maybe come up out of the sea. Maybe this is what he's imagining in his mind's eye, come up out of the sea like Godzilla and thrust its powerful jaws around the evening of his birthday that night and mash it up with its sharp teeth and swallow it whole. He basically wants Leviathan to eat up the day and night of his birthday. I mean, I've had some pretty bad birthdays. My 50th, which was the last one, was probably the best one I've ever had. Uh, but I don't think I've ever called for guys to curse in such a way that a Leviathan would eat up my birthday. Have you ever had that bad of a birthday? I have not. But that's what he wants. That's what he's crying out for here. It's, it's very bizarre. Leviathan is mentioned in other places in Scripture. It's mentioned in Job 41, verse 1, mentioned in Psalm 74, verse 14, and in Psalm 104, verse 26. 
and also in Isaiah chapter 27, verse 1. So Leviathan is mentioned in other places. Job wanted the evening of his birthday that night to also hope for light, but never see it, and to dwell in darkness, to never ever see the eyelids of the morning or the next day. Why? Because that day and that night, man, that kid's going to town. What'd you do, Andrew? I can only cause that in babies. Wow, did he see a Leviathan? <laughs> Who was, Brenda? Did you give him the Leviathan look? Yeah, he, the kid needs hope. He, he also calls for his birthday night to hope for light but never see it and to dwell in this thick darkness forever. Why? Because that day and night did not shut the doors of his mother's womb. Again, this is poetry. That night did not prevent his birth. That night did not hide trouble from his eyes. And what is he saying here? He's talking about the trouble that he's currently experiencing, the adversity, the loss of family, wealth, and health. Really, what he's done here in these first 10 verses is just he wants that day, the day of his birth, the night of his birth, just gone. Just gone. He just curses it in such a way that he wants it removed from the calendar. Now we can move to the second section. Number two, Job wishes he had died at birth. I think he reckons that if the day is not going to uh, fail to exist, then maybe I could have just been stillborn. Maybe I just could have died. And this we see in verses 11 through 19, but we'll pick it up at 11 and 12. He says this next, and this is the first of many why questions. Why did I not die at birth, come out of the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me, or why the breasts that I should nurse? Job asks three rhetorical questions here. Why did I not die at birth? Why did my mother's knees receive me? And why were there breasts to nurse me? Job, again, reasons that if he had died at birth, or if he had been abandoned even by his mother right after birth, right, she just turned him over and put him in the street or something, that he would have died moments later, and he would be, in a sense, much better off. If, if the, the day and night of his birth failed to exist, he'd be better off because he wouldn't exist. Or if he had just died at birth, he would be better off. Or he, he even goes as far as to infer that if his mother had abandoned him, which was a popular thing to do in those days. Some of us can't imagine that. All of us can't imagine that, I hope. He suggests that I'd be better off if I had just died. That's what he's saying. Why would he be better off? Well, he would be dead. He would be gone. But ultimately what he's saying is that I would not be going through this terrible adversity. I would not be experiencing the searing pain of loss and now severe health issues. I really think that Job should have waited to make this long, lengthy, poetic complaint until after his friends were done with him because he could have added to it something like, I wish the, day, the birthdays of my friends didn't exist. I wish they had never been around because these are, these are friends you don't want. 
their friends that didn't help. We'll, we'll see that in the coming chapters. But he, write, he says this right up front. And, and I feel like telling him, look, I know you've been through a lot, but you ain't seen nothing yet, Job. But he just reckons that, man, if I just died at birth, I wouldn't be going through these things. I wouldn't be in this pain. I wouldn't be in the pit of despair. I wouldn't be despondent. I wouldn't have all these emotional and even spiritual issues. In the next three lines, Job fantasizes about death. We can move to 13 through 15. He says, For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver. If Job had died at birth, he says he would have lain down. He would have been quiet. He would have been at sleep, which is usually a metaphor for death in Scripture. He would have been at rest. And when he says that he would have been at rest, what he's saying is that I would have been at peace. And why, why is he saying this? Because he was experiencing the exact opposite of all these things. He, he was up and about and frantic and anxious. He, he, he couldn't be quiet. He kept speaking. And, and you know how often it is when we're in the middle of these situations, speaking is not a good thing because our minds aren't right. We begin to say dumb things that we regret. He, he, he couldn't sleep, and we'll talk about that in a little while. He had no peace. He had lost all these things. And he says, man, if I had just died, I would have had all these things. I think it's interesting, or at least important to note, that Job obviously believed that stillborn children and newborn children and infants and toddlers and young children do what? They go to be with the Lord when they die. He must have believed this because I don't think he could have made this statement here if he hadn't believed that. And I know that in the early days, theology wasn't as developed as it certainly is today or even later on during the Davidic time or any of that. But think about it logically. If someone in Job's day or even today, if they, like a small child, a stillborn or something like that, if they... If they were to die, what, they would go down into Sheol, right? But Sheol's not a place of peace. Sheol is, is, is a place of punishment. It's a prison. It has bars, Job 17, verse 16. I don't know if you've ever been to prison or to a prison. I don't know if you've ever watched a prison movie, but prisons are neither quiet nor peaceful. They're usually very loud and disruptive. Job reasoned that if he had died at birth, he would be with the Lord and at peace. He would not be down in Sheol, because Sheol is not a place of peace, even though Sheol is mentioned more times in Job than anywhere else. And this helps to shape his theology on what happens to small children when they pass away. He believes as a small child, if he had died, he would be with the Lord where there is peace and rest. Right? And I believe that as well. I believe that's what happens with small children. And, and basically what he's saying is if I had just died, I would be with the Lord, I would be at peace, I would be at rest. In other words, that scenario of me dying at birth is much better than now because I don't have any of those things. I don't have rest, I don't have peace. 
This is what he's saying. If he had died at birth, he would have been spared his present life of pain and misery is what he's saying. And he, he believes that in death he would be in close association with kings and counselors of the earth. You see how he lists that in his poetry. He believes that he would be with royalty in the grave who built for themselves places now lying in ruins. He would be with princes who had gold and who filled their houses with silver. Thus, in death, Job would enjoy an association with the rich and mighty, a far better experience than he was currently going through. Yet I think he's referring to being with the Lord and being with the saints and people here. Um, there's a lot of varying views on this here, but I think that's what he's pointing to. Because in heaven there are saints who had riches and there were kings, and right? The good news is about heaven is that everyone is equal. There aren't any kings in heaven. There's only one king, the king of kings. But Job believes, this is part of his theology, that if he dies, he would be with kings and counselors and all these great people. He's just saying this because at one time, he was a great person. He had vast wealth. He had a huge staff. He had a massive estate. He had a massive business. He was the greatest of all the people of the East. And to go from greatest of all the people of the East to least of all the people of the East, that's going to have an impact on you. And I know our lives aren't supposed to be wrapped up in finances and wealth and possessions and these things. I get it. But if you were to lose everything in a matter of moments, you'd be tripping. Maybe you would say to yourself, I'd been better off if I'd just never been born and I would be with the wealthy saints in heaven. That's essentially what he's saying. He would be the, with the rich and mighty, just a much better experience than he's going through now. In the next four lines, Job goes back a little further and imagines what it would be like, not if he had been born, but if he had actually been stillborn, like he died in the womb. So he's going back even further. Verses 16 and 19, or through 19, he says, Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. More poetry. Job reasons that if he had been stillborn, an infant who never saw the light, he would have been spared all his misery. He's really basically saying the same thing over and over and over in different ways. And he reasons here that death is the great equalizer of the wicked and the weary. What do the wicked do? They spend their days creating trouble for others, but when they die, their troublemaking ways come to an end. Amen? They do. They don't make trouble for people in Sheol or hell. They experience trouble. But when an evil person who creates trouble for others dies, their troublemaking days are over. And this is what he says. In Isaiah 14, the king of Babylon 
comes to Sheol, the place of the dead. And when he arrives, the prisoners say, Is this the man who made the earth tremble, who shook kingdoms? Isaiah 14, verse 16. So when alive, this king of Babylon, he had made people tremble and shake. He had caused trouble and turmoil. But when he died and entered Sheol, he causes it no more. He now becomes the recipient of much trouble, of much bitter anguish, as he awaits the devastating judgment of Christ. The weary, I think, in the text here, Job refers to, I believe they are the righteous who suffer at the hands of the wicked, right? If you live a godly life, you will be persecuted, you will suffer. The weary are those who are righteous, who suffer because of their righteousness at the hands of the wicked, whether it be secular governments, whether it be false religion, whatever it is. And when they die, their suffering ends as well. And they are at peace because they are with the Lord. So, death is the great equalizer in that it brings an end to the wicked's troublemaking and it brings an end to the weary's troubles. This is what Job reasons out here. This is sound theology, by the way. Job further illustrates this truth by giving the examples of prisoners and slaves. Both groups are released from the grip of their early, uh, their, pardon me, their earthly taskmasters upon death. Death, in a sense, sets them free. If they are in Christ, they are truly freed and will never again experience incarceration or slavery or bondage. And yet, if they are still in Adam, still in their sins, their freedom from their taskmasters, from their prison guards, from their wardens, will be only momentary. And their incarceration or bondage will resume in Sheol and continue until judgment. After judgment, they will be cast into the lake of fire, which I believe is hell, Revelation 20, verses 14 and 15. Essentially what Job is saying is is that death impacts the wicked and the weary and the small and the great. It is the great equalizer in that regard. Job was the greatest, as I said, of all the people of the East, but Satan removed his wealth, removed his progeny, his children, removed his health, thus making him weary and small. He reasoned that if he had been a stillborn, he would have been better off because he would not be wearied by all these humiliating troubles. He would have started small and ended small and been spared of all this bitterness and heartache, all of the the bitterness and heartache that is literally associated with loss and sickness and these things. This is his cry in this section. And now we can move to the third section. Job, first, he curses the day of his birth, and then he, uh, (laughs) he goes to town. He goes to town, and he literally wishes that he had died at birth, even suggests that he'd been better off as a stillborn, and now he goes all the way with it and just longs for death. 
We see this in 20, 20 through 26. He says, Why is light given to him who is in misery and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? This is the question he asks. Now, again, it's another why. We must understand that light here in the text, it is a poetic parallel for life. So when you see the word light, think life. Why is life given to him who is in misery? Uh, light in poetic terms pictures the radiance, warmth, and energy that flow from human life. Job wondered why God continued to sustain his life through his present misery when he was so bitter in his soul. Yeah, really what we see here is a poetic cry or a poetic prayer. You know that, God, you know that I'm bitter in soul because of what I'm experiencing. Why do you keep giving me light? Why do you keep giving me life? This is what he's saying. Job just wonders, why? He was longing for death. He dug for death as a treasure hunter digs for buried treasure. Digging is a metaphor for praying. But when Job prayed to God for death to end his suffering, what happened? Death did not come. Death did not come. Job questions God here. It was as if he was saying, you know I'm in misery, you know I'm bitter in soul, you know I want death to end my suffering. You know I would be exceedingly glad if I found the grave. Why do you continue to give me life? That's what he's saying. Verse 23, Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? Here, Job expresses his exasperation with the whole situation. Why did he have to continue to live when peace and prosperity were hidden from him, not to be seen or experienced? And why had God hedged him in? This is the same word that Satan used in describing Job's divine hedge of protection and blessing in chapter 1, verse 10. Satan could not breach this hedge of protection unless God granted him access. Now Job felt that God had put a hedge of adversity around him that he could not breach. He feels as if God has erected a wall of adversity around him that he cannot get through or get out of. In his mind, death alone could deliver him from this hedge of adversity, but God continued to give him light or life, which made his escape impossible. Job was, in a sense, asking, why does God give life to those who will only know adversity and suffering? I think I've asked the Lord that question before, especially when I'm watching TV and there's a commercial on there with uh, people in the Sudan or in Ethiopia who are starving to death. And you look at these babies and these children and you say, why create that life at all? 
if all it will ever know is hunger and death? Why? Job is, in a sense, asking that question. But you know what I call his thinking? It's stinking thinking. Stinking thinking represents the irrational thoughts that flood our minds during difficult trials. Stinking thinking is the distorted, unclear thoughts we experience while under extreme duress. Job was uh, not a man who had been given life and hedged in so he could only know adversity and suffering. This is, he's saying this of himself, but it's not true. He was formerly wealthy. He was healthy. He had many, many children, ten children, seven sons, three daughters, lots of heirs. He had tasted the good life. But his circumstances led him to forget about these things and begin to see himself as a victim. He no longer has any recollection of his own personal history, nor does he remember the many blessings he once enjoyed. He doesn't even recognize the blessing that he still enjoys, which is salvation. Right now, Job only sees his, he sees only his troubles, and this is distorting his thinking and speaking. And like him, we can become plagued by stinking thinking in the midst of difficult trials. We can begin to see God in ways he ought not be seen as cruel as cold, as callous, maybe as Job's friends see him. They did not know God as a God of grace. They knew God as a God of holiness and righteousness and justice and wrath. This can happen to us. Our, we get this stinking thinking. We don't see God right. We can begin to see our circumstances as cruel and deliberate attacks on our person, on our loved ones, or on our friends. And they may very well be deliberate attacks by Satan on those whom we love. But we should not allow our circumstances to give in to that kind of thinking, and, and that's the mode we stay in. Ultimately, this is why we must never lose sight of the promises of God, which shall sovereignly prevail. The promises of God can be helpful during our darkest hours because they can provide fresh perspective. They can pull us out of the stinking thinking. The promises of God remind us of who we are, of what we have, what we truly have and possess, and of what we shall receive. In verses 24 through 26, Job describes three effects his excruciating ordeal had on him, which revealed that he was suffering from deep depression. A, Job lost his appetite, verse 24. He says, for my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. Food had become repulsive to Job because his stomach was constantly churning and sick. Instead of eating bread, he sighed and groaned. I'll tell you, this is, this is insanely accurate because if you have gone through some deep distress, you know one of the first, thing that, first things that happens is that you lose your appetite. 
you know, your spouse or your friend or somebody's trying to encourage you to eat and you're like, I don't want nothing to do with it. Food is just, it sounds repulsive because your stomach is so sick. Your emotions have been impacted to such a level that your stomach is sick and food is just gross. You don't want to eat. That's Job. In Hebrew, sighing, we see the word sighing here, and combined with the word groanings, it means loud shrieks. Loud shrieks come from people devastated by tragedy. It is the kind of thing we see after an earthquake or terrorist bombing when the injured and bereaved cry out in their misery. Instead of of eating, instead of drinking water, instead of maintaining a healthy diet, what does he do? He is shrieking constantly, out loud. And he had just lost his appetite. B, Job had anxiety. Anxiety, verse 25, he says, For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. What did Job fear? What did Job dread? He feared and dreaded what we all fear and dread at times. Losing our wealth, losing our children, losing our health, etc., etc. Have you never, ever feared losing any of those things at any point in your life? Have you never, if you have children, have you never feared losing a child? That's a kind of anxiety, right, that rises up at times, especially when you're going through a trial. Let me tell you this. If you lose a child and you have two other children, you will spend the rest of your life being anxious about losing more of those children. You will. Before his wealth, health, and children were taken from him, removed by Satan, there were times where he was anxious over the potential losses. Just as every natural, normal parent will experience those things. And some would say, there's no room for anxiety in the life of a believer. They're people of faith. Again, we're not being realistic here when we take up that position. We are still human beings. We will be impacted by these things. We will think these things. We will experience anxiety. And some of us will take it to another level and have actual anxiety attacks. Been there, done that. That is one of the most terrifying things you will ever go through. You feel like you're having a heart attack. Job had anxiety attacks. And if you've ever had an anxiety attack, guess what you spend your time doing afterwards? Being anxious about another one. Worrying about another attack. That's Job. We all worry about losses at times. I think the thing that Job feared most and dreaded was depression. You know, he was a very joyful, jovial man. And then when this adversity befell him, that gave way to deep, dark depression. I've spoken about this before, but I spent 10 years in deep depression. 
I was miserable. I couldn't go anywhere or do much. You can ask my wife. I met her when she was a zygote. No, she wasn't a zygote. I met her when she was in high school. I was like, I don't know, 46. You know, she was 17. I'm kidding. This isn't the South. Uh, she was in high school, and uh, I was like, I don't know, 21 or 22. She was 17. And uh, this is at the time where I slipped into this deep depression, but it was so bad that I, I couldn't even stay at her high school graduation at Downey. I went to it to honor her and then ran for the hills about halfway through it because I had an anxiety attack. Um, my depression, my anxiety, it, it went on and on and on for 10 years. It, it was very deep and very dark. and It ended nearly 20 years ago, praise God, but I still think about it and I even worry about it coming back at times. The things Job feared and dreaded, they befell him. He lost his wealth, he lost his children, he lost his health, and he slid into a deep, dark depression. And this terrible combination of losses and depression and anxiety produced, actually, that combination of depression and losses, it produced massive anxiety in the patriarch. And I have no doubt that he had anxiety attacks like I did and like others do, and I would say that he had much more reason to have them than I did. You know, one of the scariest things about depression and anxiety is that you really can't figure out why you're having it. You know you've been going through things, but if somebody asks you, why are you depressed, why do you have anxiety attacks, you don't really have an answer. Sometimes it's, it's just pure chemistry. But in any case, Job had severe anxiety, and we know that he wrestled with it before losing everything, but we know that he had it in the fullest sense after that. And then lastly, see, Job had insomnia. Verse 26, he says, I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Oversleeping and sleeping too much can be a sign of depression. If you're a nurse, you know that that's one of the big signs, but what people fail to realize is that sleeplessness and insomnia are also huge signs of depression. So it's not just that one person, a person that we know is sleeping a lot, and that's a sign of depression. If somebody can't sleep, that can also be a sign. Think of how anxiety works, it, or worry at least, it can also rob a person of sleep as they lie awake at night worrying about this or that, right? Job's depression robbed him of ease and peace and rest, and anxiety put him in a state of perpetual worry. I think he worried about more trouble coming into his life. I think he worried about his suffering never-ending I think he worried about never feeling physically good again. If you have spent any length of time feeling really good physically, and then you go through a season where you don't feel good physically, that is so disruptive. It hurts. You worry, will I ever feel okay? For 10 years, I said that. Will I ever come out of this? I can't live this way the rest of my life. I can't. 
And then when I got saved, it went away. I took Paxil for 10 years. It did nothing for me. In fact, I think there's warnings about it. Now, if you took it and your, you know, your liver fell out, call Jacoby and Myers. I'm like, great, when's my liver going to fall out? I took it for 10 years. It didn't help. When I got saved, it went away. But I still worry. I still wonder if it'll come back. I don't want to enter into that time again. I think he worried, I think he worried that death wouldn't come to end his suffering. Am I going to have to live with this pain? I think he worried about maybe losing his wife. She was essentially all he had left, that in a big empty house. Who hasn't worried about losing a spouse? He maybe thought to himself, would she suddenly die too? He worried about his finances and what was left of his estate. And I think the biggest thing that he had anxiety, anxiousness over, worry, he worried that he would never be given a reason for all his adversity. He wanted to know why these things happened to him. Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar will attempt to answer this question for Job, unfortunately. Closing. Every person has a breaking point. Even genuine believers have a point at which they can become severely discouraged, even depressed. Before I go any further, I don't want you to think that you're not a person of faith or there's something wrong with you as a Christian if you experience depression. You're not less of a Christian. You're human. Such despair can cause a person to want to give up on life. Have you ever hurt so badly that you wished you could go to heaven? Huh? Have you ever despaired to the point of longing for Christ's return? That is precisely where Job was. He was longing for relief even the relief of death that would usher him into a state of perfect bliss in the presence of God. We need to note something here. Job was not suicidal. He did not once consider taking his own life. He wanted God to take his life and end his suffering. Later on, Moses felt the exact same way. He actually prayed for God to kill him because he got tired of dealing with the Israelites. <laughs> Numbers 11, 14, and 15. <laughs> Have you ever gotten so tired of a situation or people, you're just like, kill me now. Get me out of here. Take me to be with you. Yes, that's what Job wanted. We must understand that God condemns the unlawful taking of life, murder, suicide, etc. 
Why? Because every soul belongs to him. Ezekiel 18 verse 14, or verse 4, pardon me. If every soul belongs to God, then it is not the right of the individual to end his or her own life because their life belongs to their creator. Suicide is murder, and murder violates the sixth commandment, Exodus 20, verse 13. I like what Augustine wrote. He said, for he who kills himself murders nothing less than man. Job was not suicidal. He simply wanted God to take him out. Earlier, I told you that the promises of God can be helpful during our darkest hours because they can provide fresh perspective. They remind us of who we are, of what we truly have, of what we shall receive. There is something or someone else who can be helpful during our darkest hours. In Isaiah 53, verse 4, we are told that the Lord Jesus Christ bore our griefs and carried our sorrows. And in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 15, we are told that the Lord Jesus Christ, our high priest, is able to sympathize with our weaknesses because He has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. The Lord Jesus Christ is most helpful during our darkest hours because He truly understands our grief and sorrow. He even sympathizes with our weaknesses because He knows what it's like to suffer. He knows what it's like to be tempted. In Hebrews chapter 4, verse 16, our high priest invites us to what? To confidently draw near to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in our time of need. Brothers and sisters, are you experiencing adversity? Are you suffering from depression and or anxiety? Are you in the dark hours of life? Are you in the pit of despair? Flee to the throne of grace where you shall receive mercy and find grace in your time of need. Draw near to the Lord Jesus Christ, our high priest, who bore our grief, who carried our sorrows, and who sympathizes with us like no one else can. What is the antidote to the suffering? What is the antidote to the depression? What is the antidote to the pit of despair? It is Christ. It is Christ who said, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden, come to me and I will give you rest. He is our rest. He is our antidote. He is our hope. He sympathizes with us. Spurgeon said something remarkable. He said, the sympathy of Jesus is the next precious, most precious thing to His sacrifice. 
the sympathy of the Savior, the sympathy of the good shepherd. If you are a battered sheep, go to the good shepherd. Let him pour out his love and mercy on you and his divine sympathies. Flee to him. Go to him, afflicted saint. Go to Jesus. Amen.